Hello and welcome back to The Resilient Musician, a podcast highlighting some of the incredible achievements of musicians during the pandemic. My name's Johnny and I'm Head of Artist Relations at Encore. And today I'm delighted to be joined by the composer, arranger and trombonist Callum Al. Over the past 10 years, Callum has established himself as one of the busiest arrangers in the country, writing music for Quincy Jones, Jamie Cullum, and transcribing several hundred classic big band charts from the 50s and 60s as well. He's also a brilliant trombonist and leads his own big band, the Callum Al Big Band, and the jazz combo Quintet Tet, as well as playing in the renowned Ronnie Scott's Jazz Orchestra, where, in fact, I heard him play beautifully in one of their recent virtual gigs. This morning, though, I'm particularly keen to talk with him about a recent project which he's undertaken during the lockdown, an ambitious educational book and album called The Big Band Toolkit. Callum, thanks so much for joining me today. The Big Band Toolkit looks like an incredible resource for jazz players. Can you explain how it came about? What was it that made you turn your attention to music education during the lockdown? Thanks, Johnny. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Several things, actually. We've been, Louis and I, Louis Dowdswell, who's my kind of business partner and artistic collaborator who I made this toolkit with, we've been planning something like this for quite a long time. And it came about, the the recording process started before the lockdown took place. We probably started recording this stuff in 2017 or 2018. And the lockdown actually gave us the time to finally finish off the recordings, the easy bit, of course, because it's what we do all the time and it's what we're all used to. What we're not quite so used to is the the writing side of things, the explanations, the graphic design, the publishing, all that side of things, which is totally new to us. So the lockdown really gave us the opportunity to get that side of things together that we didn't have before. That sounds great. I'm actually a little bit of an amateur jazz drummer myself, and I've had a few run-ins with big band playing in the past, which didn't go so well. And it sounds like exactly the kind of thing I would find useful. So what could I actually expect if I was going to your website and purchasing the book? Like, what would I get out of it? Sure. So basically, the book is divided into three sections. The first section is a really detailed look at what we call our short guides, our style guides. And it's talking in depth about various things that you experience in a big band that you um, really need to know as a musician. Our aim with the toolkit was to give people everything they could possibly need to be a working professional musician. So if you can play everything in the toolkit um, with no problems, then you're ready to come and do a gig with the Ronnie Scott's Jazz Orchestra, for example. The general idea behind the short guides in the beginning, they explain some of the kind of deeper concepts that we as big band musicians think about and that we as learning big band musicians picked up over kind of 10 years, 15 years, in my case, 10 for Louis in the business. And we have, we've learned and we've conceptualized for other people. It's stuff that nobody has really written down in quite that sort of format before. So we were happy to do so. After that section, 
there's the tracks themselves. So what you get in the toolkit is your parts for your instrument and you get the big band both with and without your instrument playing. So you can play along with the parts exactly as they would have looked for the drummers, sax players, whatever, who were recording in those recording sessions. So you can see what, you can basically see what you have to translate in terms of, with rhythm section players in particular, there's, there's quite a big improvised element, as I'm sure you're aware, as a drummer. So what we've done there, I've written 10 new pieces, which cover a really big range of styles, and they're quite deliberately in the style of X, Y, and Z. So I have a kind of Cotton Club, Ellington style, 30s swing. There's a, there's a 40s really silky smooth ballad. There's a kind of bassy style, a swing, big band type thing. There's a couple of fusion things. There's a funk thing. There's a Latin thing. It really does cover a huge range of stuff so that you get a, an exposure to as wide a range of possible styles as we could give. And then the third part is we did some interviews with the musicians who were involved in the recording. And for every instrument, we picked two tutors. We picked these two people and picked their brains and asked them what really interests them and what is what are the things that they would feel are the best pieces of advice to give to aspiring big band musicians. And we peppered those through the book at occasions where we thought that they would be relevant to the arrangement that you're playing on. So that's the overall package. And there's, there's a tremendous amount of stuff to work on in there. So I think it would be a really useful thing for anyone who's looking to improve their sort of big band game and take it from a kind of perhaps perhaps already being quite an accomplished player, but not interested or not used to playing in big bands specifically, it would be really great for that sort of person. It's also great for people who are already pretty accomplished big band players who just want something to practice too, because obviously, you know, you can't really practice with a live band at the moment. So yeah, that, that would be my sort of overarching summary. Great. That sounds incredibly useful because I, I don't know what it's like as a professional jazz player but from what I've seen there seems to be a bit of an educational hole between the part where you learn your instrument and then the part where you're playing in a professional band would it be fair to say you're you're bridging that gap somewhat I think so yeah I think that was basically a lot of our intention Louis and I both learned first in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra and I, we both started in our kind of mid-teens and we got a lot of that from that band, but not everyone will have that opportunity. So it, it's really important that sort of somebody tells you these things because it's not obvious. And if you don't have somebody to tell you, then you're never going to know. Yeah, it sounds like your book is almost a little bit like having a professional player standing beside you while you're going through the charts saying, actually, that's going to be better if you articulate it this way or... Exactly. There's, there's the phrasing of this section. Yeah, there's a lot of that sort of thing. There's a big long section on artic different articulations, what they actually mean, how you should interpret them. And from a sort of classical perspective, coming and playing in a big band can be quite jarring because you get a lot more freedom in how you interpret certain 
figures and phrases, but actually you don't. It's just a different way of interpreting and we go some way towards explaining that as well. I'm quite interested in how this got off the ground. You mentioned that it started in 2017, 2016. Mm. So it's been in the works for quite a long time. Did that yes. change at all when the pandemic hit last year? Because you released well, when, it, I think, in, was it December last year? We released before? it in, it might, it was either November or December. Yeah, I can't quite remember which now. It was certainly before Christmas, which is always nice. They're, they make excellent Christmas presents. And of course, Christmas is only probably about 720 days around the corner at this stage. Um, basically, when March happened, March 2020, and suddenly I had no work whatsoever for an empty diary, both on the playing and the arranging fronts for the foreseeable future. Louis and I had been sat on this stuff for quite some time, not quite having the time or the sort of, because, it, because obviously we were really learning a lot of things from scratch in terms of writing, in terms of uh, graphic design and so forth. And just in terms of how long things actually take to happen. I mean, obviously, we know how long it takes to record and arrange a big band thing. We don't have a clue how long it takes to design a whole book and to draw cartoons and so forth. So we're totally shooting in the dark in terms of deadlines and in terms of how delivery is going to take place. But... Yeah, I was staring at an empty diary and I was staring at a lack of any kind of money coming in. And I thought that really we need to do something now that's going to have legs during this time period and that can help people still play and still keep music alive in some sort of way during a time when they're perhaps not otherwise able to do so. Did this become your main project during lockdown? How did you budget your time for this? Well, so the first, I say we finished the recordings. We hadn't quite finished the recordings. So the first month or so of lockdown, we dedicated to cleaning up the mixes, getting the rest of the stuff recorded and really finalizing the tracks. And after that point, we spent probably another couple of months hashing out the text element, which takes a lot longer than you'd think. And from there, I guess at that stage, it was probably about July, August. And then we handed it over to the graphic designers and the um, typesetting people who are brilliant. I really, really highly recommend. It's Nadia Van Marcel at Nadworks and um, it's Phil Knights at Ged Music. They kind of did the, the non-musical and the musical typesetting and they're both absolutely fantastic. But yeah, we handed it over to them and then it was really in their hands to provide us with iterated designs and decide what we like, decide what we didn't like, add, remove bits and so forth. And that kind of lasted a few months as well. So I'd say that, yeah, it, it, it really did take longer than, a lot longer than we thought it would take. And as to it being my main project, I think it was one of them. Yeah, I've always got several plates spinning, but certainly for that first month, it was taking up pretty much most of the time there. And as far as creating a book is concerned, I imagine that's something you were saying you're not familiar with. Most musicians listening probably aren't familiar with publishing a book. Mm. How did you go about finding those contacts and resources for publishing? And 
I guess all of the costs come at the start when you're paying the graphic designers and yeah. the publishers and the payoff is, is much further down the line. Yeah. With musicians, perhaps familiar with that, for, with recording an album, but I wondered how you dealt with encountering those publishing questions for the first time. Yeah, I mean, we just paid for them, really. We knew that we would have to invest in this to make it good. And we knew that we'd have to put the money up up front and we were reasonably confident that we'd be able to make what we spent back. You can't earn money without spending money, ultimately. You have to invest what you're willing to, within reason, you have to invest what you're willing to put in order to get anything out at all. So I think we were very lucky with who we were working with. Phil is someone I've worked with for many years. Um, he was in Nigel a few years above me, but he was always the Nigel copyist. So I've worked with him since Nigel days, and he's done pretty much all my music copying since then. He's really brilliant. I couldn't do half of what I do without Phil's help, because when you're working up against a tight deadline and you just have mountains of music to get through, the speed at which he can produce a beautiful set of parts from a kind of scribbly Sibelius short score is pretty absurd. Nadia, we were really lucky to meet as well. I met her through Claire Martin, who was the singer on my other album that was released this year. That we finished way before all the lockdown stuff came into place. It's called Songs and Stories. And we launched that in, we launched that post lockdown in June, but it was recorded, all, all the recording was finished over a year ago. And Nadia did all of Claire's sort of digital marketing and website and so forth. And she's just very good at that kind of thing. Makes really striking, beautifully executed graphics and text setting as well. So yeah, we were really lucky with those people because they were really instrumental in helping out with all of that. I was going to ask actually about the, the Songs and Stories album. Mm. This was recorded with a 70-piece orchestra. Yes. I was imagining that couldn't have taken place during the pandemic. No, we recorded Songs and Stories over two sessions. The orchestra was recorded in uh, March 2019 and the big band was recorded possibly February 2019 but yeah we record we recorded it in in two kind of in two days really and yeah that wouldn't be possible now all those musicians in one room it's a real shame because it's I really do miss it you've obviously got quite a lot of experience now under your belt recording albums particularly with large ensembles mm. is there anything you've learned as a result that you would advise a musician if they were considering recording an album like this like like a sort of big band type project you mean yeah i guess a large style album or, or just yeah. recording an album in general sure i'll go for large ensembles first because i think that's more something that i've got some expertise in i would say that the most important thing you can do is to make sure that musicians are happy whether that is through making sure that your writing is something that your musicians are going to enjoy playing. That's one thing. Making sure that you're treating them well in terms of timings, payment, all of those sorts of things. Just you get such a better result out of musicians who are willing to go the extra mile because you're treating them well. I'd say that's 
thing number one. Thing number two is not to spare any expense because when you're releasing an album, you're putting something into the world that will be there forever. And if you're not happy with any element of it, five, 10 years down the line, and you just think to yourself, oh God, I wish I could have, uh, I don't know, recorded that in a larger room or changed those microphones on that, it's probably worth the extra whatever you end up spending on that within reason, of course. I'm not suggesting you hire multi-million pound artists, but it's probably worth spending a little bit more to get a lot more. And that especially applies with recording spaces and recording engineers, because if you go somewhere where they're not used to that level of people and that, that, that number of microphones and that number of bodies in the room, you end up with a lot of time wasted just hanging around waiting for things to happen. And that really puts everyone in a bad mood and the result is often much worse. Great. I think that's a really useful tip. I'm also quite struck by how productive it seems you've been during the lockdown period. It's a time when mm. a lot of people, I think, are struggling for motivation. You can't meet up with other musicians, share ideas in a particularly easy way. Is, is there anything you've found particularly helpful, any habits or any practices that you've used over the last year or so to make sure you continue to focus on your projects and, and get them out the door? Yeah, I'm going to be very blunt here. The most um, helpful thing in terms of motivation was not getting any free money from the government. I mean, I was in a very fortunate position. Most of my work, even prior to the pandemic happening, most of my work was stuff that I did at home anyway. I'd say that I'm a performing musician roughly 20% of my time in a normal non-pandemic situation. And I'm an arranger, orchestrator, composer, the other 80%. So in a sense, that 80% was not hit nearly as much as if I'd been a full-time performer. You know, there's some people on, for example, the West End shows who also didn't get any free money, who are sort of a little bit stuck for anything to do because they've dedicated their whole lives to being just badasses on their respective instruments. And there's nothing for them to fall back on like there is for me with the arranging. But as I said, in March, I was staring at an empty diary because nobody had quite figured out how to do music in the new home recording streaming paradigm, which has now come back a little bit. And I really needed to make sure I was doing something. I really needed to make sure that, frankly, I was still able to pay the bills, pay the mortgage, make sure everything was ticking over on that side of things. So there's nothing like the threat of looming poverty to motivate you to do things. And I think that's a, an, underrated, that's an underrated motivational tool. I think that's a very fair, very honest answer. I think, as you said, because you've done so much arranging in the past, in a way, mm. you had a bit of a safety net yes. from the risk of losing playing work that perhaps other musicians didn't have. Mm. I'm, I'm interested in the amount of time you've spent on arranging. I don't often come across musicians who say, I'm an arranger first and foremost. What is it about it that you enjoy or you find fulfilling? It's a problem-solving thing, actually. When you're arranging something, you're, you're usually under quite a stringent set of restrictions. 
And these can be restrictions that are totally out of your control, like you've been given a lineup that you just know won't work, like, I don't know, a bassoon quintet playing David Bowie or something. Or you're, that's probably a bit rude to bassoon quintets, but I don't really care. Um, or you're, you're given these tasks which have quite a, spe a specified start and end point, and there's a way to solve that puzzle, and there's a way to kind of mold things and fit the keys in. And I've always really been fascinated by that kind of problem-solving type thing. I'd say that it's like more skill than art. It's more technical knowledge of how to solve problems than it is creativeness. There's creativeness involved as there is in any musical activity. I'd say it's like 60-40 skill to art. And I really like that element. I really like the fact that you can find inventive ways to solve puzzles that have been presented to you that might seem intractable at first glance. I, f I find it a, a nice intellectual puzzle to solve. And there's also the fact that as a trombone player, there's a certain number of hours in the day that you have to dedicate towards just sheer with, and it's the same with any instrument, sheer kind of muscle memory, drill it into your head so that you cannot possibly do anything wrong. And I got to the stage in my life where that didn't feel like a particularly good use of time. I got to a certain point which I was reasonably happy with and to get any further. It's the whole, the Pareto principle, 80% of the, of the ability takes 20% of the work and then the rest is the the last and vice versa, of course. So I think that the diminishing returns on instrumental practice for me had reached a stage where I was no longer that interested in, you know, I'm, I, I never had particular aspirations to be the very best, like no one ever was to borrow a term from Pokemon um, on my instrument. It, it just, it, it wasn't, it, there's too much repetition by rote learning and by just sheer reps and not enough thought that I think goes into that very final stage that I was just not particularly interested in doing. So arranging kind of took that place of... Yes, exactly, because, the, because there's, 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 there's repetitious practice in arranging because you have to do loads of it, but every time you're doing it, it feels like you're solving a new puzzle. You're thinking about something new. You're not, you're not arranging the same thing over and over again in, in 10, 15 different ways. Oh, well, maybe you are because you're being paid to do it, but you're not doing that out of the sheer choice very often. And yeah, it's a bit more, I find it more interesting, more intellectually challenging than instrumental practice, which has its own challenges, that's for sure. And I'm totally in awe of many of my performing musician colleagues who can do superhuman things, quite frankly. I quite like that idea of, of arranging being a puzzle. I think it's probably an underrated activity for musicians in general. They mm. need to have that skill set. And also yes. to, to have something that's a little bit more objective and doesn't require so much of your yourself and your identity to be, to be put into it. So perhaps there's lower stakes and maybe it can be a little bit more grounding and calming in a way than going yes. about, like creating original music all the time. Yes, and you don't have nearly the same level of, you know, the, the sort of, oh my God, oh my God, paranoia, do people like me? I think it's, it's best to stay out of that whole 
Twitter, Instagram type culture and the, the arrangers are allowed to be invisible or allowed to be more invisible. The uh, performing musicians by nature of their job must be totally all over the whole social media thing. And just such a massive turn off for me. I can't stand it. Yeah, I agree. It's a kind of necessary evil, I think, for mm. a lot of musicians. And then finally, I'm interested in what's on the horizon for you. What's next? You've got this big band toolkit out the door. What, what are your aspirations for that? And perhaps aspirations for in, in your career for later this year as well? Well, as I said about the big band toolkit, it was aimed primarily at your kind of musician who's already at a certain level. And I'd say that the, the people we were aiming that at are ourselves aged 15 before we went to Niger or 17 or whatever it was. Louis, Louis was there younger than I was. And it's a really great resource for anyone who is at that level already. It's not so great, and I'll be the first to admit this, for a grade four, grade five student. It's too hard for them and there's too much prior knowledge assumed, which was by design. You can't, you can never design a book that's for everyone or it's really a book for no one. But what we're doing next, I've written, I've almost finished writing them. I've got one more to do. I've written 10 more new pieces, which are aimed at that kind of level where you are, we're calling it, we haven't decided on a name yet, but the kind of beta name in design is the Intermediate Big Band Toolkit, which is definitely not going to stick because it's a terrible name. But it's designed for people who are at a sort of high school type level, grade five, grade four, grade five to grade eight, but just on the cusp. So the hardest parts in there will be playable by your best student at the sixth form college and will be a really great challenge for them. And the easiest parts in there will be performable by any of the, any, anyone at a sort of grade four, grade five level in a school band. And the idea behind this is there really isn't a lot of music that's written for that kind of ensemble from scratch. There's a lot of adaptations of things that are not that good because they feel a little bit patronizing because they're clearly easy kids versions of the proper adult versions of the tunes. And there is a lot of stuff that's really far too hard for school bands to play, but they try and play it anyway, like the Gordon Goodwin big band stuff, which I love. I think it's brilliant, but I, I, I don't think that any, if I hear a high school band that can play it, I'll be super impressed. But to, to this day, I never have heard a high school band who can actually play Count Bubba or something like that. So we're trying to sort of aim something at that group and push something that they will perhaps get more out of so that, so that there's sort of an on-ramp from the intermediate toolkit, not final name, to the ultimate toolkit. And we can have, we can get people, we're doing it in reverse order. I think we'll probably do a beginner one eventually. Other personal projects, I am Louis and I are working on another album with his big band. Nothing more to share on that at the moment. I've probably done 60% of the writing for that, but that's a long way off. I don't think that will be out before maybe early next year, early 2022. Anything else? I've got the usual stuff in the book that is just general work for various people. I work, I work a fair bit for the BBC orchestras. There's a couple of things on the horizon with them there's a couple of things with a couple of the german bands as well but that, that's all just standard things that i do when 
I'm asked to do them and I'm very grateful to be doing. In terms of stuff that I'm developing under my own steam, the first two things are the, are the biggies. Great. Well, I'll look out for the intermediate big band toolkit or whatever it's called when it comes out. I think that would be suitable for my level. Coming to a, an e-store near you, probably in a longer time frame than we think it'll take. <laughs> I'm going to say that based on the last one. That's a compelling pitch. And yeah, I think that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid, Callum. But thank you so much Great. for coming along. No, it's um, lovely to I'll... chat. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. And I'll hopefully see you at Ronnie's gig live Indeed. sometime I, I, in the not too I near really future. Hope that, I really hope they start up again fairly soon because it's perfectly good and fine doing a stream for a, for a streamed audience, like an audience at home, but it's really not the same. You don't get, you don't get any of the kind of reaction back and someone plays a great solo and there's nothing in the room. It just feels, it feels wrong. Well, the vaccines are out and we'll hopefully yep. have some gigs later this year. Yeah. Well, let's hope so. Much, so. Thanks Johnny. Speak to you soon. Yeah. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Resilient Musician with me, Johnny Venville, and my guest, Callum Au. Join me next week when I'll be speaking with the singer and viral TikTok sensation, Johnny Stewart. Johnny started posting videos of his bass singing on TikTok last year and rose to global fame a few months ago as the baritone part in the viral Wellerman Sea Shanty video, gaining a record deal and a whopping 200,000 followers in the process. If you're not sure what TikTok is or how it might be useful to musicians, this is definitely an episode for you. Lastly, this podcast was brought to you by the team at Encore, the UK's online marketplace for booking musicians. If you're a musician who'd like to join the platform or you're someone looking to book a musician for a virtual or live event, you can find out more information at encoremusicians.com.